So uh, a couple months ago, I was, uh, I was asked to do a funeral. And um, every, every time I have the privilege of doing a funeral, I, I just get a little bit nervous um, because that's just not something you want to screw up, right? Weddings and funerals, you just want to make sure you get it exactly right. And so um, I, I remember that morning sort of getting ready. And as I was getting ready, I was kind of rehearsing what I was going to be saying. I was going over my lines. And so I'm buttoning my shirt and I'm, I'm putting on my shoes and practicing my lines. I drive to church. I park. I get into this kind of back room preparing to go out to see all these family and friends of this person who passed away. And, and uh, as I'm in this kind of room, sort of pacing around back and forth, practicing what I'm going to say, all of a sudden I take one step and sort of like trip. Like, like it kind of like, it feels like something kind of gives out from under me. I don't know, didn't see anything. So kind of walk a little more and all of a sudden like something gives out again. I look, I lift up my shoe and no joke, my shoe is falling apart. Like it's falling apart, which I, I didn't know these kind of things happened. And so all of a sudden my shoe is falling apart and I'm trying to gain balance and I'm getting more and more nervous because I'm about to do this funeral and my shoes are falling apart. And so I walk out as I like wait till the very last minute. I walk out uh, to where the service is going to be, and I'm walking for a few steps, and it just feels weird. Like, I can just feel it kind of disintegrating from under me, and I look back, and you guys, there's literally a trail of parts of my shoes on the ground. This is like a bad day, right? This is a really bad day. And so I'm walking, and I'm trying to, like, keep my step and not look like just a weirdo walking around. My shoe is falling apart behind me. And I take a seat. And it's the beginning of this funeral, and I'm just trying to figure out how am I going to get through this. So I eventually walk up to kind of the podium, and it looks kind of similar to this. And there were a group of people sitting out there, and, and I'm, I'm standing. And all of a sudden, I kind of start preaching. I preach the message. And I, I had kind of forgotten about the shoes. I started to get really, like, excited about what I was sharing. I was kind of, like, walking around and getting real passionate. And, and then all of a sudden, at the end of my sermon... You know, I ask everyone to pray, and then uh, I kind of go, and I have a seat. And I was sitting in the front row next to the person whose family member had passed away. And I sit down, and as soon as I sit down, I look up on the stage where I had been standing. And no joke, you guys, there is a chunk of my shoe this big, this big, on the stage sitting right there. And the guy next to me, I mean, it's just so weird, but the guy next to me, I saw him just kind of like staring at it, like, what is going on right now, right? What is going on? My shoe's there. And so I had one more opportunity to come up. I was going to kind of, I had to pray to kind of close out the service. And so I walk up and I'm like, everyone, close your eyes, close your eyes. And, uh, and, and in the middle of my prayer, I literally grabbed this chunk of my shoe. I put it in my pocket and I say, Amen. And I run for my life, right? Like, I am getting out of there as quickly as possible. And I remember as I was running out, behind me are literally just chunks of my shoe falling apart. You see, I wonder if for some of us, one of the reasons we haven't yet put our trust in what God's word has to say is because if we're honest, we're afraid it's going to crumble from under us. That we're afraid if I truly rest my life on this, if I truly 
ground myself to this story, if I, if I truly put everything, all my eggs in the basket of the story of God as recorded in the Bible, what happens if it falls apart from under me? What do I do? I want to start at a passage in John, and then today I want to talk about the Bible. I want to talk about reasons that we can trust the Bible, but I want you to find me in John chapter 1, verse 43 to 46. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about the prophets that they also wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Well, that would have been crazy, right? Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You were the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's calling these disciples. He's telling them things they had never heard of before. He's performing incredible miracles. And what's insane about the story is that Jesus invited a bunch of unqualified nobodies to change the world, and they did. That Jesus called together a group of mostly teenagers, mostly theologically untrained people, He called them together. They didn't have a lot of prestige. They didn't have a lot of followers on Instagram. They weren't very popular. And they changed the world. I mean, it's an absolutely incredible story when you read it. But let's be honest for a minute. That was 2,000 years ago. How can we be sure that the Bible and the stories of Jesus can be trusted. And maybe some of you are like, man, are, are we allowed to ask these kind of questions at church? Are we allowed, at Christian camp, are we allowed to, I thought, I thought we are supposed to just kind of pretend that we all believe the Bible. What I love about the theme this year that Hume has set up for us is we're going after the hardest questions. We're wrestling with the Bible, and I literally want to ask the question, how can we trust that the stories, the events, the miracles, the prophecies recorded thousands and thousands of years ago can be trusted that they happened and they're the same recorded stories that we read about today. And so here's what I want to do. And and, and we're going to blitz through this, you guys. We've got a lot to unpack in a short amount of time. But what we're going to talk about is this. This is the central question we're going after this morning. What is the Bible and why can we trust it? If you want to write that down, what is the Bible and why can we trust it? And as I'm moving through these slides really quickly, if there's some things that you didn't get down or things you want to look at again, I have these slides. You can have them for free. They're available to you. Just come talk to me. I'll send them to you. No problem. I want you to have them, but we got to work through this quickly. Here's, Here's our four big questions for this morning. Our four big questions are this. 
what is the Bible? How do we know the Bible is true? Why should we read the Bible? And how can I read the Bible the right way? We're going to unpack each one of these questions together. So let's start with this one. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? Simply put, the Bible is God's inspired and authoritative revelation to humanity about who he is, who we are, and how we are to live. Let me unpack this really quickly. The Bible is inspired. This means that God used people, that God inspired people to write these words. It's different and set apart from any other book, and it's authoritative, meaning it speaks to our lives, meaning it calls us to submit our lives to its teachings and its word. It's authoritative over us. It's a revelation from God. But here's what's beautiful about the Bible. The Bible is about who God is. The biggest questions of life, who is God? The Bible answers that. And then the Bible answers the big questions that we ask, who are we? How are we to understand ourselves? What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to live a life in rebellion to God? How should we understand our identity and our worth and our value? And just as our opener so beautifully portrayed, if we don't have, if we're not rooted to a deeper understanding of who we are, if we just rely on the messages that our culture gives us, we are in trouble. We are in deep trouble. Because if you're constantly living your life based on how other people define you or tell you to define yourself, you will be tired, you will lack peace, you will lack direction. And so the Bible says this is who you are from a God who created us. And then thirdly, the Bible says how we are to live. What does it mean to live? Here's what's crazy about the Bible. The Bible, over a 1,600-year time period, so from about the year 34 or 3,400 years ago, from like 1,400 B.C., over a 1,600-year time period, using multiple genres, 40 diverse authors in various locations on three continents, the Bible tells one unified story, the story of God. This is unlike any other holy book. It's incredible how diverse the authors were, coming from such different places, and yet they tell the story of who God is. The word Bible it literally, mean, it literally means books or library of books. And so when you think of your Bible, maybe some of you have one here, and I know Hume has some that they love to give you guys. If you don't have a Bible, we want to make sure you have one. That, that the Bible is not just one book. It's really a collection of 66 different books. In the Old Testament, those, those are all the events that happened before Jesus showed up on the scene. There's 39 of those. In the New Testament, there's 27 books. That's, that's what happened with Jesus, the story of Jesus, and then what happened to his followers after. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this kind of 400 years called the intertestamental period. This time where there, weren't written, where there weren't writings included in the Bible. It's written by 40 different authors. And here's what's crazy, you guys. Here's what's crazy is that in the year 1947, in the year 1947, the oldest Hebrew, the Old Testament, the oldest manuscripts that we had 
were dated in the year 900 AD. So if you think about it, back in, back in Old Testament days, as they're kind of writing these stories as God in, God's inspiring them, copies are being made over and over and over again so that the stories can be preserved. And in the year 1947, the oldest manuscript copy that we had dated 900 AD. But in 1947, 223 brand new manuscripts never discovered before of the Old Testament were discovered. And the oldest one dated to the year 125 BC. In like archaeological world, this was insane. That literally overnight, we, we had copies, we had new copies that were a thousand years older than the ones that we had the night before. And everybody was asking the same question. Are these copies from the year 125 BC, do they match the copies that we have from the year 980? In other words, were things changed along the way? And what, what they found was astounding. It shocked them that with 95% accuracy, the copies from 1,000 years apart were the same. And that 5% difference it was uh, a slight spelling mistake that a scribe had made. It was, it was the, a missing punctuation. Nothing theological, nothing historical, nothing about the events, nothing about the details were different. This is unbelievable in this time period that over a thousand years, all of those copies, they matched exactly. Do you know that the Bible is the most popular book of all time? How many of you have, have read or, or watched The Hunger Games? Anybody watched or read The Hunger Games? Okay, okay. Did you know that The Hunger Games trilogy has sold 50 million copies? You know that? 50 million copies. How, how about uh, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Anybody read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has sold 85 million copies. How, how many of you like Lord of the Rings? Raise your hand if you like Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings trilogy has sold 150 million copies. The Bible... The Bible has been distributed and sold four billion times. In fact, every year, yeah, give it up for the Bible. In fact, every year, every year, 100 million copies are sold or given away of the Bible. Now, the Bible's broken into Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament was written between the years 1400 and 400 B.C., they were written in the languages of Hebrew and Aramaic on papyrus or leather. They were eventually collected as a whole in the year 95 AD. And Christians, followers of Jesus, we take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus believed it, he quoted it, and he used it. The New Testament was written in between the years 50 and 90 AD by eyewitnesses or those who they had interviewed that were eyewitnesses. It was written in Koine Greek, and I love this about the Bible, that when God chose to, to share his message with the world, he chose to use the language of Koine Greek. Now, there was classical Greek, and there was more fancy Greek that, that wealthy, rich, educated people could understand, and then there was Koine Greek. Koine literally means vulgar or common language. It was the Greek that it didn't matter how much education you had. It didn't matter what zip code you came from. It didn't matter how much money your parents made. It didn't matter what kind of job or trade your family had come from. Everyone could understand this language because Jesus from the beginning wanted all people to understand his message. 
The New Testament focuses on the life of Jesus and the churches of modern-day Greece and Italy and Asia Minor. The Gospels and the letters that are recorded in the New Testament, they began to circulate immediately amongst the churches in the first and second centuries. And then the entire Bible is canonized, which means like it, it's kind of brought together in a complete authoritative set in the year 397 AD at the Council of Carthage, which was overseen by the North African church father and theologian, St. Augustine. Let's get into our next question. How do we know the Bible is true? So that's what the Bible is, but let's get to the heart of the question. How do we know the Bible is true? So we got to ask really two questions related to that. The first one is this. Is the Old Testament reliable? Is the Old Testament reliable? Check out this quote from biblical archaeologist Dr. J.O. Kinnaman. He said this. Of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts found by other archaeologists, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, phrase, clause, or sentence of the Bible, but always confirms and verifies the facts of the biblical record. This is outstanding. This means every time a specific place or king or leader or person or event is recorded in the Old Testament, and then archaeologists go to those places to find uh, verifiable facts to validate and to back up what's said in the Bible, every single time they find those facts to be true. Or check out this, Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross is an astrophysicist. He said this, the Bible contains 2,500 prophecies, and 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. The chances of this happening, by chance, are 10 to the 20,000th power. Now, I'm a pastor, so I failed math, but that's a lot of zeros, right? That, that's a credible amount of zeros, a prophecy, a prophecy is just literally a promise that God made in his word. A promise that God makes that he fulfills in the future. The Bible is full of them and a vast majority of them have already been fulfilled. Or look at this one. In approximately 700 BC, the prophet Micah named the tiny village of Bethlehem as the birthplace of Israel's Messiah. Jesus was born around 7 to 4 BC in Bethlehem, making the fulfillment of this prophecy one of the most widely known and widely celebrated facts in history. So that's the birth of Jesus. Let's look at the death of Jesus. Some 400 years before crucifixion was even invented, both Israel's King David and the prophet Zechariah described the Messiah's death in words that perfectly depict the mode of execution. Further, they said that his body would be pierced and that none of his bones would be broken, contrary to customary procedure in cases of crucifixion. Historians and New Testament writers confirm that Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross and his extraordinarily quick death eliminated the need for the usual breaking of bones. A spear was thrust into his side to verify that he was indeed dead. That's how the Old Testament is reliable. Let's talk about, is the New Testament reliable? Can we trust the New Testament? Here's three reasons. Number one, the New Testament writers included embarrassing details about themselves. They talk about how they fell asleep when Jesus needed them most. 
Peter is called Satan by Jesus. If, you know, Peter, Peter ends up kind of leading the charge after Jesus ascends to heaven. Would you want everyone who is learning about the Jesus movement to know that at one time Jesus called you Satan? Wouldn't that kind of ruin some of your credibility? But these embarrassing details are included because it's true. It's even recorded in the Gospels that some of the disciples were confused and they even doubted Jesus before his resurrection. How about this reason? Number two, the New Testament writers included events related to the resurrection that they would not have invented. For example, there's a lot of conversation about Mary Magdalene, who, who, was, who was a woman who was formerly possessed by a demon. She becomes the first to see Jesus. See, in, in that day, in that culture, a, a woman's testimony, unfortunately, didn't carry the same amount of weight as a man's testimony. And so if you were going to make up a myth about Jesus, if you were going to try to convince a group of people that Jesus actually rose from the dead, even though he didn't, you would not use a woman's testimony. You would use a man's testimony. But because the Bible is just recording true, actual, historical, factual events, it tells the story as it happened. Or how about the fact that the disciples were afraid and that Thomas even doubted that Jesus rose. And number three, I think this might be even the most compelling of all. The New Testament writers abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs. They adopted new ones and did not deny their testimony under persecution or threat of death. These disciples, they began to worship Jesus as God. Many of them grew up in the Jewish religious system. That was blasphemy. That was not okay. You don't worship anyone but Yahweh, but they became convinced that Jesus was God, and so they worshiped Jesus. Peter, one of Jesus' own disciples, he was crucified upside down. Jesus' brother James was stoned. Paul was beheaded. Eleven of the disciples were martyred, and John was boiled in oil and then exiled to Patmos. All of these guys could have had way more comfortable, easy lives they hadn't chosen to follow Jesus, but they did because he was true. So question number three or part three is this, why should we read the Bible? One of my friends, Ben, he was going through an incredibly hard time in his life. Like everything was falling apart from under him. I remember one time with tears in his eyes as him and I were talking, he just said, Eric, lately, when I open the Bible, it feels like I can breathe again. Maybe some of you students have been there where you're just so looking for hope. You're so looking for purpose or meaning. Encountering the Bible, reading the Bible enables us to see who God is. And see, the problem is when we don't run to Scripture to get a real good view of who God is, do you know what happens? Our view of God begins to shrink, and our view of our problems begin to get bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, we see our problems and the things we're dealing with and the fears and uncertainties that we have as being these massive mountains, and we see God as being so small and so powerless. 
But when you run to the scriptures regularly, daily, and you open them up, it exposes you to the truth, to the reality that God is massive, that God is almighty, that God is holy. That oftentimes in the Old Testament, you'll read God's name as Yahweh, almighty, that that God is Yahweh, he's relational, and he's almighty, he's all-powerful. And so reading the Bible enables us to see again. It's why Paul in 2 Timothy says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is God-breathed. It means it's the way that we become close to God. It's, It's the way he speaks to us. It's the way we encounter him. The writer of Hebrews said, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That the Bible becomes our base for understanding how God thinks about us. How God wants us to understand him and what it means to follow him. And here's our last question. How can I read the Bible the right way? How can I read the Bible the right way? Here's just some practical tips. Number one, get a Bible and find a time and a place that works for you. Carve it out in your schedule. For me, it's in the mornings. It's when I wake up in the morning. This morning, once Charlie and I, as Charlie and I were waking up, went out in the living room, just spent some time with God in the book of Exodus, encountering him again. I want to encourage you to read one book from start to finish. It can be kind of tempting to be that Christian where you're like, let's see, God, what do you want to say to me? And it's like, well, okay, when you do that, you're you're taking everything out of context. You're missing the whole of the story. And so I, I want to encourage you to start in one book from beginning to end. And I think a great place to start is the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is what we're talking about all week. So that'd be a great place for you to start. Number three, read the Bible privately and with others. The beautiful thing about the moment in time and history that we live in right now is we have access to the Bible like no other generation has ever had access before. And so every single one of us can read the Bible daily on our own, but it's also important to read the Bible together. It's why showing up to youth group and showing up to your small groups or life groups, showing up to camp, gathering in your cabins and studying and talking about the Bible together is important. I would encourage you to pray before you read the Bible. I always say, God, would you speak to me right now? I want to encounter you as I read about you, as I learn about you, as I experience you. And then lastly, talk with friends and family about what you're reading and learning. One of the methods I know that we talk about here at Hume, it's it's an incredible method for reading the Bible. It's called the SOAP method. What, What you do is whenever you pick up the Bible as you're beginning to read, you kind of work through the acronym SOAP. The S stands for Scripture. First time you're reading it through, you're, you're trying to seek out what verses are standing out to me. Th- then you're making observations. You're saying, okay, who is, who, is in, who is in this text? When is this happening? Where is this happening? What's actually going on? Why is this event taking place? Then you get to the application, the A. How does this apply to my life? God wants to speak to you, and he wants you to apply his word to your life. And then the P stands for prayer. At the end of your reading, say, okay, God, in light of what I just read, 
What do you want me to do? Students, if you will start a daily Bible reading habit today, it will change your life forever. I love what the uh, fourth century North African theologian, St. Augustine said. He said, for now, treat the scripture of God as the face of God. Melt in its presence. The book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, it promises you and I that one day we will see Jesus face to face. I mean, that's gonna be incredible. We are gonna literally see Jesus face to face, but I love what St. Augustine said. He said, but for now, treat the scripture of God as the face of God. Melt in its presence. Sometimes, sometimes I'll talk with students who are like, man, I just wish like God would speak to me. Man, I just wish that, that, that like God would say something to me. Like, like I want to hear God's voice. And I have to like control myself. I have to like hold myself back because what I want to say is, and what I eventually say is, bro, he wrote you a book. Like you're looking for God to text you. You're looking for God to do like an Instagram reel for you. He wrote you 66 books to tell you how much he loves you, to tell you who he is, who you are, and what it means to live. If you want to hear from God, spend time with him in his word. There was a, a young adult who came into my office a couple months ago, and she sat down on the couch, and we were just talking, and she was sharing with me about her whole life and all of the pain and abuse and trauma and suffering that she had experienced. And then this phrase just kind of rolled off of her tongue as if she had said it many times before, as if she had believed it for a really long time. She said this, I know God hates me. She said, I, I know God hates me. And when she finished sharing, I looked at her and I said, number one, I am so sorry for all that you've gone through. You have experienced so much pain. And, and unfortunately, there's some of you students who you have experienced incredible amounts of pain already in your short life. And maybe when you see those words up on the screen, you go, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. And I told this young woman, I said, but I need to be honest with you that God doesn't hate you. That, that what you've experienced in this life is the reality of sin and brokenness. It's what it does to us. But, but what you've experienced in this life is not evidence that God hates you. If you want to know how God feels about you, if you're looking for evidence about how God feels about you, don't look to the circumstances of your life. Look to the cross. Because the cross of Christ makes it absolutely, explicitly clear how God feels about you. Oh, God doesn't hate you. God loves you. And in fact, a biblical perspective of God actually enables you and empowers you to experience immeasurable suffering 
and never forget that God loves you. That's why it says, as we'll talk about in a few nights, John 3.16, for God so loved. Let's do it. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved. And students, this is incredibly powerful. Because if you rely on your circumstances and your feelings to tell you how God feels about you, you will be on a roller coaster of life. And you will make tons of regrettable decisions searching for someone that could tell you what your heart is longing for, which is what God has already told you from the beginning. Through his word. For God so loved. So here's my question for you to leave with today, this morning. How would your life look different if you lived as though you had full trust in God's word? How would your life look different? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our deep dive this morning. I thank you for each of these students who are maybe wrestling with for the first time the reliability of your word, the trustworthiness of your story. Because we're going to be spending the whole week looking at your word, we, we need to take time today to wrestle with the question, do we believe it? Do we trust it? And God, I pray that today and this week, that each one of these students would have a renewed commitment, a love, an appreciation, and a trust in your testimony, in your story, in your word. As the Bible tells us who you are, who we are, and what it means to actually live. So God, may we, as St. Augustine said, melt in its presence as we encounter the word of God, as we encounter you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.